Welcome to Murder and Mayhem, the podcast where we explore the dark and mysterious side of writing. It's a world filled with more evil and crime than you can shake a sharpened stick at, where people save the world from certain destruction, where spies, terrorists and thugs abound, and where the killer could be someone in your very own home. It's also a world often filled with flawed heroes and likeable villains. But above all, it's a place where we explore the authors who tell these very stories, what makes them tick, and how their words manage to take us to some of the darkest corners of our imaginations. Hello everyone, my name's Valerie Koo and I'm host of the Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast. This episode is brought to you by the popular online course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. Over eight spine-chilling modules, you'll delve into each step of the murder process, including the psychological, forensic and legal aspects of homicide from premeditation right through to prison life. Brought to you by one of the world's leading centres, for writing courses, the Australian Writers' Centre. Using both real and fictional cases, you'll discover the many faces of killers, the police who pursue them, and the victims who get caught in the killer's trap, all designed to enhance your crime and thriller writing and help you bring writing about death to life. It's a self-study course with a full audio program, including accompanying handouts and videos and resources where you can view real forensic and police reports reports and a dissection of real murder scenes. Find out more at murdercourse.com. That's murdercourse.com. Thanks for joining us on this installment of the Murder and Mayhem podcast. This is Valerie Koo. And don't forget, if you want your free ebook, which is called A Month of Murder and Mayhem, which is the ebook that accompanies this pop up podcast, then you can download it for free at murdercourse.com and it will curate all of the people that you're going to listen to in this pop up podcast series. And you can have a look at their key takeaways and insights all in a nice, neat little ebook. Today we're talking to Sonia Vomard and this is a fascinating chat with Sonia who is a very experienced journalist in Australia. She has also written a novel called Political Animals but I'm talking to her about her non-fiction book which is called The Media and the Massacre which uh, I found a fascinating read because it is kind of part memoir, part true crime because it's about some the aftermath of the horrific poor Arthur Massacre, which happened in Tasmania uh, a couple of decades ago. And what Sonia does is explore how the media and other people treated, but in particular, the mother of the serial killer, Martin Bryant. So that her name is Carlene. Uh, Martin Bryant was the um, person who was ultimately convicted and who committed all of those horrific crimes and, and, and murders. And um, it was a fascinating read. If somebody had had told me, oh, you know, do you want to read about uh, read a book about the uh, about how the media portrayed Martin Bryant and his mother after the after the massacre? I would have said no. 
But Sonia has written this in such a way that it is very compelling and, uh, and, a very, and a great read. And obviously she has to be very sensitive about the way she writes about it because she's dealing with some issues that are still um, a terrible memory for, for many Australians. Um, anyway, this uh, interview was originally part of the, our other podcast called So You Want to Be a Writer. And that's where we interview lots of writers and editors and publishers from all over the world in all walks of life. But here in the Murder and Mayhem podcast, we've curated them all in one spot. I hope you've been enjoying the series so far. And today, let's listen to Sonia Vomard. Okay, so Sonia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, but for those readers who haven't read your book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Well, The Media and the Massacre is an in-depth literary non-fiction story about one of Australia's most complex and fascinating breakdowns between journalist and subject. In this case, the mother of the perpetrator of Tasmania's 1996 Port Arthur Massacre, Carlene Bryant, and two former Fairfax journalists, Robert Wainwright and Paola Totoro. And did this arise initially out of an interest in the event itself, the Port Arthur the Massacre, or at the handling of, of, of the book written by Robert Wayne, Wainwright and Paolo Totoro? Well, I mean, I had always been fascinated um, by the events of 1996, the Port Arthur Massacre, but then I, I saw that there had been this terrible breakdown in relations between these journalists and this uh, kind of high-profile but very weak in, in terms of social um, uh, power subject. So those two things coalesced in, in my mind as something of great interest. Um, additionally, I've, I have great interest in the works of American writer Janet Malcolm, whose great theme is the idea of the writer's treachery. So I, I'm very interested in the way we as writers treat the power dynamics between ourselves and our subjects. And this seemed to me to be an emblematic example of you know, all of the issues that you could explore in such a, a case study. Mm. And what happened in the breakdown in communication or the way it was handled between those two authors and Carlene Bryant, the, you know, Martin Bryant's mother, is, uh, I don't I don't even have the words for it, gobsmacking. Um, uh, it, yes. It's it, in case people aren't familiar with it, because it's the essence of your book and the way you tell it and the way it unfolds is absolutely fascinating. Can you just give listeners a summary of what happened? Yeah, sure. So, Carleen Bryant's story became a prized commodity in the media marketplace. Everybody wanted to get at it. Um, she had been treated very poorly over the the years. Uh, after the massacre by journalists who sort of, you know, would, would chase her and, and um, you know, effectively stalk her to try and get access to her or get photographs of her. And she was very traumatised by this and, 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 and obviously the events themselves. And she had tried to commit suicide twice. Um, then after, 10 years after the massacre, uh, she decided that she 
wanted to tell her story to, as she put it, set the record straight. And that by that she meant about details of her family. Um, some of them were quite small details, but they were important to her. She felt that the media had, had effectively ransacked her her life, her story, that of her family, and had left many mistruths strewn along the way. It was complicated by the fact that she still expresses doubt about the guilt of her son, Martin, and I do describe her in the book as an unyielding female victim. Mm. But anyway, she wrote a 10,000-word manuscript, which she submitted to a literary agent. Now, the agent said that the, the manuscript was very interesting, but that Carleen would need professional writers to help her tell the story. So after a series of sort of communications across the channels, Carleen was put in touch with the then Fairfax journalist Robert Wainwright, and he then brought his wife, another Fairfax journalist, Paola Totaro, in on the project. Carleen allowed the journalist to have her manuscript in her mind so that they could write a book outline for her review. Now, she didn't like what they produced, and she sought to end the arrangement, believing that nothing further would come of it. And she asked for her materials back, and they were given. The journalists, to Carleen's great surprise, then went on to write uh, their own book, uh, using many verbatim ac extracts from her manuscript, she said, without her explicit permission. And um, she later received an undisclosed settlement over the, the, the book's use of her personal manuscript. Mm. Now, this Port Arthur, of course, occurred 20 years ago. The book in question was 10 years ago. At what point did you know you were going to write a book about this well, I, I I had taken a, a career break in, I think it was 2010, and um, this story had occurred along the way. Um, and I had planned to go and do a, a Doctorate of Creative Arts uh, at, at UTS. And when this story sort of bubbled up through the, the various media channels, mainly Crikey, um, I just, it just struck me as a, as a fascinating, uh, you know, study of, and a, and a wilderness of ethics and, and how things can go wrong. Mm. So, you know, essentially my desire to do a doctorate and, and this kind of con complex breakdown and conflict occurred sort of around the same time and I, I seized on it um, with, with intellectual relish. And this, so this started off as part of the doctorate and turned into a book, is that right? Yes, correct. I, d I did a, uh, a doctorate on the power dynamics between journalists and their human subjects with a specific focus on uh, Port Arthur and, and this case study in particular. Um, and part of that doctorate, the creative component, has um, ended up being this book called The Media and the Massacre. Mm. Now, you say you took a career break in 2010. Can you just give listeners just a very quick potted history of your career so that we've got some context? Sure. Uh, I started as a cadet journalist on the Melbourne Herald in 1980, uh, and I went on. I worked there for five and a half years, and then went on to to work at the Age and and later the Sydney Morning Herald for a further decade. Uh, I worked as a political journalist uh, in Canberra and also in Victoria, New South Wales, and and Brisbane. In fact, um, in the aftermath of the Fitzgerald inquiry and the downfall of the Bjelke-Petersen government. Um, but I've also worked uh, a lot in the field of arts journalism. So, so questions of philosophy and politics and ethics have always fascinated me. Um, I 
I went freelance in uh, 1995, um, and I was in fact a freelance journalist when these events happened. Um, and then in the, I think it was the early 2000s, I, um, I, I started teaching non-fiction writing at UTS uh, while doing my master's and also writing a novel about being a political journalist. Uh, but in the meantime, I've also made a living uh, in in the corporate world through speech writing and other sort of storytelling around um, corporate social responsibility and, and uh, those sorts of subjects. So writing about real life, which is obviously what you have done here, uh, particularly when you're writing about a sensitive issue like Port Arthur or a controversial issue like the way those authors have <laughs> handled their involvement in the book is is difficult and you're effectively portraying your version of events in a sense. What do you do to balance the, the fact that you obviously got an opinion about certain things with, you know, balancing it with the other side? What did you do to make sure that you did that or did you make sure that you did that? Yes, I, I certainly did. I mean, um, any journalist who has has, has been trained properly knows that you should always try and get both sides of the story and, and sometimes there are more than two sides, of course. Um, look, I, I read a great deal around this particular case study. I spoke to many of the players. Uh, the journalists themselves declined to speak to me on two occasions, three years apart. Carlene Bryant also declined to speak to me, but her a close friend had kept a, a very comprehensive set of archives around the events, so I was able to learn a lot from what what, what the communications had taken place uh, throughout the course of this conflict and, and, well, before it turned into a conflict, but when it did and afterwards as well. Um, and then, I, yeah, as I said, I, I interviewed many of the other players and uh, and also used my own uh, own professional judgment based on you know, my, my, me having been in similar sort of situations where subjects have been highly sought after, but but um, you know, difficult to to interview or perhaps um, traumatised in some respect uh, to the point where it makes it quite hard to negotiate the terms of of engagement. When you are writing something like this, you need to represent the facts and represent, as you say, uh, the balanced kind of facts. But you also need to, especially in a book length, uh, something that's the length of a book, you you also need to tell a compelling story and write it in such a way that, you know, people are not only, you know, learning about the story, but they're hopefully savouring the words that you use. What Absolutely. You, what what did you do to do that? To not just represent the facts, but to tell it in that compelling way. How did you think? How am I going to structure this story? You know what I mean? It's so complex. <laughs> well, you know, that's yeah. I mean, structure is one of the toughest things for writers. And I, you know, I, I taught uh, um, creative nonfiction at UTS for for most of the last ten years, and and um, and I learned a lot along the way. And and uh, one of the things I always spoke to my students about was how tough structure is. And I'll, um, I guess I'll come back to that in a moment. But the, what I did to make it, it readable and interesting, that there's a, a genre of writing with which you'll be familiar, which is literary nonfiction. It gets called lots of things, creative nonfiction. It gets called literary journalism. But the idea is that you use novelistic techniques uh, to bring true stories to life. And by that I mean, you know, similarly metaphor, um, you know, uh, you appeal to the senses with, with descriptions and colour around, 
you know, what, what people are wearing and what, what the atmosphere is like. It, it sort of was a form of journalism that arose, I think, in America um, in, might have been the 40s and 50s and then um, was, you know, received a lot of attention with the likes of Hunter S. Thompson and, mm. and the new journalists. Um, but it's, it's been continued on in a, in a great tradition through people like Joan Didion, uh, Janet Malcolm, of course. And the idea is that journalism can still, and, and true stories can still be true, but be beautiful to read and be interesting to read and be full of colour. Mm, mm. And so this book did have... Um a lot of research. Uh, you've, you've interviewed lots of people, yeah. you, you went places, you, um, there's a lot of stuff in it. How in over many years, and, you know, it wasn't just a three-month job. <laughs> so no. on a practical level, what did you yeah. do to organise your research? I mean, you know, did, <laughs> how did you keep track of it? What Because the sheer volume of it is so different to writing a, you know, 1,500-word feature. Yeah, sure. Look, yes, I mean, uh, well, one of the, thing, one of the um, pieces of advice that I got very early on when I was doing the doctorate was um, from somebody who was quite unconnected to, to the School of Humanities that I was working in, but she said uh, to, at the beginning of the project, make it physical so I got a great big plastic box, and I still have it sitting under my desk as I'm talking to you now. And everything to do with the project that was physical, in you know, as, as opposed to electronic, I threw into that box um, in a sort of loose form of filing, I guess. <laughs> so that was, and that made it, um, as well as knowing where, you know, that, that even if I didn't know exactly where they were in that box, I knew that that things were in there, mm. and I could find them. Um, and that was psychologically very reassuring to me and it, it, it felt like a very organising um, act to, to just have that, that box and in, in a sort of contained form. And then as well as that, of course, you have all of your uh, electronic recordings and you, you, know, you, you keep hold of those uh, in, you know, in your, your computer files and then you have all your books, your reference books that, um, that you've you know, collected over the years and some, some of them obviously I, I, I borrowed from the library about 20 times before I had to return them. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's the sort of organising you do. I, I, did trans, I did physical transcripts of all the interviews I did as well so that I could quickly access um, sections of them um, and recheck them if I needed to, make sure that I quoted things in a way that I was happy with and that, that, that I felt was balanced. Um, so, yeah, that, that's pretty much... Um, how I went about it. Was this a labour of love or was this an intellectual exercise? Because it's 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 massive and yeah. it's obviously took a long time mm. um, and, you know, there's a great result. But the, mm. what pushed you on, on during those times oh, when you just like was, oh, my God. It, I'm not I, look, it, was, it was a labour of love, but, I mean, I, I wouldn't – I mean, I don't want to sort of em- overemphasise the passion, for, you know, that – that I felt for the topic at hand. I mean, I did feel very interested in it. I was intellectually fascinated by it. The, the, the labour of love, if you like, was in the writing. I just, I just love researching and writing. Mm. And, um, and those, when I was doing that, I just felt I, it was like three years of it. It was like, it was like being in a dream in a way. Mm. Um, I know that sounds strange, but it, it, when there was nothing I enjoyed more than coming home in an afternoon you know, on an afternoon after teaching and sitting down at the computer and, and just disappearing into that world. 
Wow. Now, the way the authors, Wainwright and Totaro, uh, handled the way they dealt with Carleen Bryant's manuscript, um, like I said, is gobsmacking. Um, Did you have to hold yourself back from, (laughs) you know, (laughs) going to town? Yes, of course. Look, I, you know, it, it was complicated by the fact that I, I have been a, you know, was a long-term member of that, that tribe of Fairfax journalists. Mm. So a lot of their friends and my friends even still, they live in the UK, mm. but, you know, we have a lot of people in common. And so that made it, made it kind of awkward. And there are some people <laughs> who, who felt very kind of uncomfortable about it. You know, they, they felt loyalties to, to Wainwright and Totoro, but they also respected me for what I was doing. Mm. Um, so, yes, I mean, that, that was difficult. Um, and but luckily, I think because I had left journalism um, in the sort of day-to-day sense, I didn't feel frightened or um, kind of compromised by that sort of tribal loyalty that a lot of journalists do, where they won't kind of tell on their own. Mm. Uh, and I think you know one of the biggest issues uh, with, with the profession at the moment is that the the, the compliance process is seriously broken, and if somebody has a a complaint against a journalist, there are very few robust ways that they can go about getting it sorted out. You know, the the code of ethics um, for the media union is confused with the codes of ethics of the individual um, media houses themselves, and then there's the press council, which doesn't deal with book-length works. And so for a person who is not versed in, you know, matters of journalism and, and, and kind of writerly ethics and all of those kind of debates, it's very hard to, to work out where the hell to go. Mm. And um, this is something that um, Carlene Bryant's friend, Joan, who I interviewed, um, felt very, very, very keenly. And I think even when I spoke to, as you would know from reading the book, some of the people at the um, Media and Arts Alliance who were involved in the complaints process, they were kind of scratching their heads and agreeing that the whole thing was broken. Mm. Um, what was the hardest thing about writing this book? Oh, gee. Um, well, I guess the hardest thing, well, yeah, I mean, it depends how you look at that question, but first, the first hardest thing, I guess, was that three of the, the key protagonists wouldn't talk to me. Mm. So I had to learn my way, to, I had to learn to write my way around that. Um, and some people even suggested, well, if you, if you don't get them, you haven't got a book. And I just, refused to to bow to that because I believe that, you know, it it, it would be utterly unjournalistic to give up on on the chase uh, simply because people who, who, you know, don't want to tell you their story, uh, you know, or don't want a a particular story told, um, you know, refuse or decline to talk to you. Mm -hmm. So there was that aspect. Um, Then I suppose there was, yes, I mean, you know, I'm I'm entering into a very uh, small... um, you know, some would say incestuous world um, in criticising, um, you know, fe- fellow journalists. And uh, I guess there's that thing about, am I going to sort of lose <laughs> lose friends out of it? And, um, and that's, I suppose, still to be seen, although most people have been very supportive and very encouraging. Mm. Um, and uh, what else? Um, the other thing, I suppose, is just uh, in terms of going to Tasmania and talking about those events 
albeit in the context of the media coverage of them. Um, I suppose not wanting to be seen to be putting myself forward as an, as an expert on events that I hadn't experienced and in, in many ways didn't necessarily have have a right to see, you know, to, to sort of um, jump in on. Mm, mm. What, the, what then was the most satisfying thing about writing this book? Uh, look, I felt that um, I wanted to give voice to some powerless people Mm. And I feel like I did give voice to Carleen Bryant, and I know from um, I haven't spoken to her directly, but her friend um, Joan, who has has been in touch with me since Carleen has read the book, has um, told me that with a couple of um, exceptions that Carleen's very annoyed about, but um, <laughs> I, I won't discuss those. But uh, she said Carleen told me to tell you she thinks it's an excellent book, and mm. she's going to recommend it to her friends and. And she thanked me on behalf of Carleen for bringing this story to light mm. because she felt that the story had been buried. And yes. I think the thing, it, you know, j- just sort of to articulate like that even a bit further is that I, I'm, I'm really interested in writing in between the dominant narratives mm. um, and, and, and seeing nuance rather than ignoring it. And I think that so much of the, the, the narrative, especially that which gets put out by mainstream media, is... Um, is so uh, simplistic yes. and that if a story is complex and this one undoubtedly is uh, you know people don't see the the, um, the commercial value in it and mm. I was really proud and pleased that uh, my publisher Transit Lounge did see the value in it and did see that we need to have more nuanced discussions around things like ethics and writing. Mm. Well, it's very sensitively written and it's very um, – I think you do. You, 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 you have given voice to something that would have otherwise been buried. Um, let me just take us back to – you mentioned that you previously wrote a novel that was Political Animals in 2008. Writing fiction, obviously, or writing a novel is very different, <laughs> totally different to writing something like this. Which process do you enjoy more? Gee, that's a tough one. I mean, look, I loved writing the novel. I remember when I, I did the novel as a master's before I obviously did the doctorate. Mm. And um, and the reason I suppose I wrote about Canberra in a novelistic form is because I wanted to say some fairly outrageous things about journalistic culture in Canberra in terms of the way people behave and the sorts of the sort of subculture that it is. So I felt that I couldn't really write that in a non-fictional way. So I chose fiction and um, and I really enjoyed it. It took me a long time because I was doing it while working full-time. Um, but eventually I came out with a, um, something that I was very happy with. And the thing about fiction, I think, is that you you can write away from the truth. So if you want to tell a truth, instead of saying, you know, as was the case in my case, in, in my real life, my father died when I was young. I, I created this character whose mother died when she was young. Mm. So I, I, I did those sorts of things to sort of, um, yeah, to fictionalise the story. And, and, I mean, certainly the story of political animals itself is completely fictional, but there are truths in it. Um, the, the, the events themselves did never occur, but, of course, but the, um, the texture and the, the, um, the embroidery around the events uh, is very much based on, on my experiences as a uh, news reporter in Canberra. Mm-hmm. Um, so then 
while I was doing that book, I was also teaching nonfiction writing part time, and I sort of became in love with nonfiction writing. And I realised that nonfiction writing, and in in a, in a sort of with a literary um, kind of take, uh, is probably uh, something that I'm much more enjoying pursuing now. And, mm. and once I I took that career break, um, I started writing essays that I was submitting to publications like Meangen and Griffith Review, and I. I had some success and uh, I realised that this was something I actually could do um, and, and, and seem, seemingly it, was, it, it is easier to get published writing non-fiction um, and even my publisher Transit Lounge told me that it's really hard to find good non-fiction whereas, you know, he gets inundated with, with fiction, some of which is, is good but he can't publish it all because there's just, you know, there's, there's more of it than, than there is good non-fiction. Mm-mm. So, what are you working on now? Are you working on an, another non-fiction? I am. I'm, I'm actually uh, working on a series of essays uh, that are um, autobiographical. Um, and in fact, I was writing them sort of uh, in parallel with the media and the massacre. Originally, I was going to sort of alternate one chapter, one chapter, but that didn't work out. And so, I took all of those essays out of of the media and the massacre and I'm, I'm collating them into another collection um, and I've still got to write some more but I've got a pretty good, I suppose I've probably got three quarters of a of a project um, done before I'm, you know, probably got to do about three or four more before I show it to, to the publisher. Are you saying that they were in the media and the massacre? Well, originally I, I was doing, um, I, I, I had this kind of idea that I would do one chapter about my memoir and then I would do one chapter about this other narrative. Oh. But the two things were too far away from each other and, yeah. and it, it, it just didn't have enough of a, 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 a logical spine. Right. So I, I took those pieces out. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not related to it at all, but they were related to, you know, this is what happened to me and I was, I was just going to tack between the, the two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just it, it, it wasn't working structurally, so I, I separated them out. Mm-hmm. So they will be hopefully the, um, the subjects of, um, of an, another book in the not-too-distant future. And so tell us, when you were writing, because obviously there's a whole lot of research you need to do, and then did you do all the research first, then sit down to write? Did you write as you researched over the years? How how did this actually Mm. work on a practical level? Uh, I started writing straight away because um, I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't, I can't drive myself unless I'm seeing some words on the page. (laughs) So I would, I would do it, I'd do um, it in parallel. So I, I would, I would research and write, research and write, research and write, and yeah. So you just end up in this kind of, this kind of interesting pincer movement where you're, um, you know, you're doing bits of research, and then you're writing. Because the writing, of course, for me is the ex- well, research is exciting too. But but it's it's getting there and getting it down on the page that's the exciting bit. So in a way, the writing is the reward for the research. Mm. Um, but yeah, I did them concurrently. Did you have any kind of word count target or how did you, you know, Well, pace a doctorate yourself? of creative arts has to be between 80,000 and 100,000 right. words. Um, and there was a, another component to the doctorate which is called an exegesis and that was, um, that was called the interviewer and the subject and that's also something that I might dive into and try and sort of 
shape into something publishable um, in the not-too-distant future. But um, we were told uh, sort of unofficially by um, people who knew about these things that it was best not to... It was best to stay on the 80,000 side of 100 because the examiners themselves only get paid a very small amount of money and they don't have to, want to have to wade through too much. Um, but, yeah, look, I think if people are thinking about writing something for, for publication commercially, you know, 60 to 65,000 words seems to be the sort of the, um, the ballpark. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, well, um, The Media and the Massacre, absolutely fascinating book. Um, you know, if if somebody had told me that somebody was going to write a book on this, I would have gone, oh, really? I mean, it would never even cross my mind, to be honest. Um, but uh, I'm very glad you did because it's, as you say, a story that I think needs to be told and it's been told very, very well. So thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it, Sonia. Thanks very much. I enjoyed the chat. I think it's always fascinating when you're writing about true crime because you have so many more restrictions placed upon you. You have you can't just use your imagination. You can't tap into that creativity and you can't make stuff up like you can if you're writing a fiction novel. You really have to be true to the story and stick to the facts. Having said that, as they always say, truth is stranger than fiction. So sometimes the material that you have can be extremely compelling and extremely fascinating. So it's uh, it's it's an interesting challenge because you can balance those two things. Well, you have to balance those two things. You've got this, this treasure trove in some cases of material, but it's a lot harder to convey it um, because you need to do it in an accurate and responsible way. One thing that I suggest as an exercise is that if you are used to writing crime fiction or you often prefer to write crime fiction, try your hand at true crime. I'm not necessarily saying you need to research something for 10 years and and write a true crime book about it, but just as a writing exercise where you might spend a couple of hours writing true crime, where perhaps you just do internet research or go to the library or, you know, get inspired by something in the newspaper and write the story of that true crime incident and see how you can bring colour and life to it while staying within the parameters of truth and reality and accuracy. Likewise, if you prefer writing uh, non-fiction, so perhaps you prefer writing true crime or perhaps you have a background as a journalist and that's just what you know, the truth, Try your hand then at fictionalizing something that is true crime. Let your imagination run wild. I know that a lot of people, well, some people who are used to writing nonfiction and have a passion for writing nonfiction, actually find it a little bit challenging to let their imagination run wild. So I encourage you to do that in an afternoon, on a weekend perhaps, just as an exercise to see where that new approach can take you. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed listening to Sonia Vomart. The Murder and Mayhem podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres for writing courses, with online and classroom writing courses in all genres of writing, including crime writing. Students enrol from all over the world. You'll find a course to suit your needs right here at writerscentre.com.au.